Hey there, I'm Brooke Thomas. Thanks for joining me here on The Conversation, filling in for Jane tonight. Anna actually is gonna be here for the second half of the conversation. You're gonna get both of us in this portion of the Young Turks tonight, and I am glad to get started. First up, we have Anthony Abraham Jack, assistant professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and a really great story that I'm excited to be bringing to our viewers. Anthony, good evening. Good evening, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. We had you on the damage report before, but I wanted to get yes. you on this show too, so everyone gets an option to hear about this. Now, you wrote a piece in the New York, in the New York Times Magazine called I was a low income college student, classes weren't the hard part. Saying schools must learn that when you come from poverty, you need more than financial aid to succeed. And I know a lot of this is based on your own personal experience. So can you kind of give our viewers a little bit of why you wrote this and what you experienced? You know, it is my own personal story. I am a first generation college student, the son of a middle school security guard, the brother of a janitor. And a lot of people think that when you get a full ride or a good scholarship, that's all you need. And that's kind of also what colleges think, but they have to realize that access is not inclusion. When you open the gates with just money, you ignore all the other struggles that students have. And on college campus, there is a hidden curriculum, a system of unwritten rules and unset expectations that only those whose family have been to college or who have been on college campuses themselves know about. Like the, like for example, office hours. You know, most people have never heard the term office hours, yet when you get to college, people expect you to be able to go to a professor's office sit there one-on-one to ask questions or to just talk to them about general material. And that's the way you get those letters of recommendation. Those are the ways in which you get asked to be their research assistant and things like that. And if you're not comfortable doing that, or if you don't know that you should, you lose out on a lot of opportunities. And colleges did not take the next step to think about what they need to do to to not just admit lower income and first generation college students, but support them while they're there because they assume that we have the same kind of cultural knowledge as the upper middle class who have went to certain schools, have certain parents that have certain jobs that can teach us how to navigate these places. A good point that you bring that up um, because sometimes like often like going to a professor's office during office hours and just showing your face and like this willingness to, to learn can be the difference between passing or failing a course. Yeah. And I mean, how do you know that, right, if you've never been around anyone who experienced that? I mean, just think about it. How many schools in America actually set aside time, high schools in America, right, set aside time where teachers are mandated to be there to ask just questions for uh, any kind of questions that students have after the school bell rings, right? It's mostly Mm -hmm. the private schools or some of the smaller publics um, that are typically in more wealthy areas that can have the resources to have people dedicate that much time um, with, with students in that kind of way, right? Office hours are a term that for some lower income students, when they heard it for the first time, as one dean told me, they thought it was actually a time when professors did their own work when they should not be bothered. The exact opposite of what many what professors and what university officials think of them as, right? So Uh there's something that's lost in communication with with lower income and first generation college students navigating this hidden curriculum. And that's one thing I talk about in that article and also the book more generally, because if you are a lower income first generation college student and you go into this environment, you need, different sorts of support. But the problem is the students who need the kind of support that are housed within 
the writing center, the math center, mental health counseling, those the students who need the help the most are the least likely to go and get it because they don't know that it's there. They don't have that, that they have access to it. Mm-hmm. And so how we begin to change the culture around what help seeking is and making sure that students actually know they can and that they are entitled to those resources. So I wanna touch on something else that you brought up in the article, food, eating on campus, especially when you rely on kind of campus provided services to get your meals, but the campus is completely shut down, whether it be a holiday, something like that. Explain a little bit of what goes on for what you call, I think, the privileged poor. That's the term you use, right? Mm -hmm. So many people, when you think of college students, many people don't realize just how rampant the problem of food insecurity is. Food insecurity is a national problem. Mm-hmm. Not knowing where your next food is coming from, next next meal is coming from in college, roughly estimates show that two out of five undergraduates in America are food insecure. Right? And then when people think about that, that's eye-opening, but it doesn't matter what school you go to. Because I study elite schools. I study the Harvards, the Yales, the Princetons, the Amherst, the Williams. And even on those campuses, food insecurity is a problem. So I've had students tell me everything from they tried to live off of one meal one meal a week, I mean one meal a day. Um, students going to the dollar store to live off anything they can microwave. One student actually went um, lined up dates using OkCupid for the week for the week um, the week before spring break to line up dates the following week, banking on gender norms of older men paying for the first meal, she treated okay Cupid as if it was DoorDash. Like she made do. Like drastic times call for drastic measures. I'm not saying that that response or that action is universal. What I'm saying is students are inventive and creative when they need to make ends meet. The question is why are universities putting students in that kind of position when they could actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Why should students waste their energies trying to scavenge the city for food or doing other things like rationing out food and living off of increasingly stale stale food that they are able to have in their dining hall? Because at the school that I study, the elite school that I study, one out of every seven students were food insecure during holidays and recesses, which the school shut down, assuming that all students leave for fun in the sun. Which if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. I'm not, plane tickets are expensive and if your family doesn't live close. And there was something else you've touched on, um, kind of like this idea that if you grow up poor, being poor, being food insecure, that's not that's nothing new. But you learn how to adapt at home. You know, you know what deals are at the local restaurant. Like you know where, you know who gives um, almost expired food for super cheap. You know how to figure it out, but that's a different and it's a whole new experience when you're in kind of like a shut down college ghost town. Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, when I was growing up, that's when McDonald's had the 29 cent hamburgers and 39 right. cent cheeseburgers on Wednesdays and Sundays. And when, every, you know, that Wednesday before payday was always tough. And so we would go to the store, we would go to McDonald's and say, give us 15 hamburgers or 15 cheeseburgers because we were able to afford that and we would make ends meet. But if you don't have a car or if you don't have access to, you know, um, to some of those easier finds that can you can get a real sale, you're stuck. But this is not just a problem that lower income students face. Like what about students who know that home and harm are synonymous? 
right? That's something that's very important. We have a number of students who are in the foster care system, which means they don't really have a home to go back to. That's true. And what about those students who have very fraught relationships with their family, um, especially those students who are queer, questioning, or, transi- or, tra- or transitioning? To go back home sometimes can be a as much psychological pain as as anything else. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, are the what can the university do to make itself not only accessible but inclusive for the new crop of students that we, that we are admitting? So, do you think university leaders like know this problem exists? As you're explaining it, it seems obvious. But um, do you think they know? They know now. Okay. I think, um, and I'm, you know. And the same way I'm like on this, I feel like a national campaign to talk about not only why we should define office hours, but also why we should think about food and security on a college campus. The problem is those who control the purse strings of the university are oftentimes those with the least amount of contact with students. Those who set the calendar, who um, set the policies for when the dining halls open, who negotiate the contracts for food services, are those who are not in contact with students. So they actually don't know who stays on campus and who doesn't. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's an out for university. I think they should be held accountable for supporting their students. But I'm trying to bring two two groups of people in a conversation with each other that previously didn't even cross paths really, because if you work in an administrative building, you're probably not walking by classes or dorms. Like you're in a very different part of the university. So now we are able to have a conversation around, and not just food security, right? Because the the conversation gets expanded to housing and security. Mm-hmm. And these are among undergraduates who are at the uni- who are at the university. But when you think about the meal plans and different things like that, there are significant gaps. So what can be done like right now at this point? What can start being done to address this issue? What systems can be put in place? To me, data is our most powerful ally. We actually need to know who, not just um, who are who, which, which um, who our students are food secure, but also making sure when. Because knowing just how many of our students will get us only halfway there. We need to understand if food security is episodic, meaning that it's happening just about every day. I'm sorry, um, episodic, is it happening around breaks? Or is it chronic happening just about every day? Because that requires two different responses. If it's chronic, it helps when you have a food pantry, a food bank relationship, relationship with food banks and, and other and other resources. But if it's if it's episodic, meaning it only happens over breaks, that means we need to change our dining hall policies. Mm-hmm. And so understanding both the nature and the prevalence of these issues is incredibly important. And we need to understand what is the undergraduate experience at our universities so that we can have tailored and very, very real responses to a very real problem. Anthony Abraham Jack, your book is titled The Privileged Poor. You can get it on sale right now. Thank you so much for being here with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. All right. All right. Like I said, after this break, Anna Kasparian will be back sitting right here in this seat to talk to you. Stay with us. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Anna Kasparian, and joining us now is Congressman Ro Khanna, who's made many appearances here at the Young Turks. But this is probably the first time I've interviewed you, Congressman Khanna. Anna, that's true. I'm surprised, but I'm excited that I'm going to get a chance to talk to you. 
Well, thank you for joining us again. And um, I thought that we could uh, discuss some updates in uh, the presidential election. There was a big, new, big news story today about uh, Senator Kamala Harris uh, dropping out of the race. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think her uh, campaign uh, never really gained traction. Partly the time when she went off of Medicare for all really hurt her. I mean, originally uh, she was running on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all. Uh, that is such a big issue. And then something convinced her to change and her drop in poll numbers, in my view, were correlated with when she shifted her position uh, on that issue. Definitely, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Elizabeth Warren has shifted on that issue a little bit as well. I mean, she has come out with her transition plan, which is a two-step process. She says that she would start with a public option and then in her third year in office, she would push for a true Medicare for all system. And right after she did that, she noticed a significant dip in the polls. In fact, let me just be specific and share some of those numbers with you. Nationally, Warren has dropped from a high of about 27% in October's real clear politics average of polls to near 16% at the end of November. In Iowa, she has dropped about five points in the same period. And in New Hampshire, her support has been cut in half. Now, interestingly enough, Washington Post included a number of quotes from Democrats who feel that the reason why she suffered wasn't because she moved away from the progressive policy, but because she had leaned in to the progressive policy. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, first, I'm glad that she's still supporting single payer. My view is, though, there was no reason to split it up into two bills. I mean, what she should have done is said, I'm for Medicare for all and I'm for the single bill, the bill that Bernie Sanders has written. Because Bernie Sanders, by the way, his bill that all of us are on uh, actually talks about a Medicare buy-in and Medicare rates for the first couple of years. And it's a gradual transition that gets to a full single payer system by the final year. And Met Bernie's bill also allows for supplemental insurance. So his bill is very thought through. And I think the mistake in my view was having this idea of two bills because it gave the sense that is she really gonna get around to the second part? Uh, what she should have done is just explain what Bernie's bill does and the gradual transition that it already has. Why do you think that she approached the transition the way that she did? Because I mean, I think that we might have different perspectives in how much she really supports Medicare for all. I mean, the likelihood of anyone successfully pushing for anything in their third year when they're gonna gear up for reelection, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So to me and other progressives, I think it's signaled that she wasn't really genuine in her support. I mean, we could be wrong, but you seem to have a different perspective. Why do you think that she pushed for this transition plan? Well, talking to Pramila Jayapal in the House was, as you know, the author in the House of the Single Payer Bill. Uh, she believes that Senator Warren is very sincere about uh, a, a plan of getting to uh, single payer. Uh, but I disagree with the two bill strategy. And I think there was political advice saying, oh, is it a liability? We have to look at history. I mean, uh, Paris Wofford in 1991 won Pennsylvania running on national health insurance. Ted Kennedy was for national health insurance. Jimmy Carter ran on national health insurance. Lyndon Johnson wanted it, uh, Truman wanted it. So this is a policy that goes back 70 years 
Uh, and the polls show that 66% of Americans want it. It's only the Beltway that views this as a, a liability. Now, I think where people uh, could ask legitimate questions is what is your transition plan? Is the transition going to be gradual? What is, how are you going to pay for it? And those are all things that actually Bernie Sanders' bill does. And uh, mm -hmm. my view is she should have answered those questions instead of splitting it up into two bills. I 100% agree with you. I think that she unfortunately hurt herself in in proposing the transition the way that she did. I want to move on to other policies that have been proposed by progressive candidates. You have Bernie Sanders who has a housing bill and he worked with AOC in order to propose a Green New Deal housing plan, which I thought was incredibly impressive. And what I'm curious about is, not only your thoughts on those proposals, but whether you think that there's enough there in regard to providing affordable housing. I mean, we're both in California where there's an explosion of homelessness. There is a lack of affordability when it comes to housing. Do you think that their bill addresses that issue enough? It does, and this is an issue that's close to my heart because in my district, you've seen skyrocketing, skyrocketing home prices, people having to pay almost $3,000 for a one month of rent in a one bedroom apartment, uh, an increase in homelessness in San Jose and in Fremont. Uh, so uh, we're asking localities, we're saying, okay, build more affordable housing. And the mayors and city council members will tell you, but how do we do this when we don't have funding for schools? We don't have funding for infrastructure. So having a federal program that allows builders uh, to build low income affordable housing and provide cities with grants so that they can build the infrastructure to support that is necessary. And Bernie Sanders' bill does that. And it, he also uh, says that the building needs to be uh, green buildings, that they uh, should be retrofitted or fitted in a way that don't, don't have carbon emissions and that uh, will run on renewable energy. So it's a win-win, it's gonna solve homelessness uh, and housing, it's going to help create new jobs, uh, and it's going to be good for tackling climate change. Yeah, I think I think that the approach is so comprehensive because it touches on so many societal issues. You know, the environmental uh, impact, homelessness, the need for jobs. I mean, it's it's such a comprehensive and impressive bill that doesn't seem to get much attention at all in the mainstream media, and if it does, it's usually a negative discussion about how it's a pie in the sky issue that no one's ever really going to accomplish. And so we don't really see other you know proposals by other presidential candidates. For instance, Pete Buttigieg, who we talked about quite a bit on the show today, he says that there should be focus on political philosophy as opposed to specific political proposals. And so he thinks that's the winning strategy. Do you think that it's actually working for him? I mean, he is experiencing a rise in the polls, but is this something that's sustainable for someone like Pete Buttigieg? I don't think so because people ultimately will look at what he's proposing. I mean, he's opposed and running attack ads on Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren for supporting college for all. Uh, and you know, in, with a disingenuous argument, I mean, he's basically saying people who make 150,000 or $200,000 uh, if their family makes that, they shouldn't get to go uh, to college uh, for for free. Uh, Hillary Clinton actually had a more progressive proposal in 2016. She had an income level of 125,000. But the point is that we can easily afford to make college 
uh, free and it should be a public good, just like high school is a public good. And it would be the cost of two years in Afghanistan. So some of the talking points that he's using, I think are gonna backfire. The idea of Medicare, if you want it, uh, he's not leveling with people that that's still gonna mean thousands of dollars of premiums for families, trillions of dollars that American families are still gonna be paying across the country in insurance, and that you're not gonna get a system of Medicare for all because most people can't afford those kind of premiums. So I think once you look under the hood, people do care about uh, the concrete specifics of how you're gonna improve their lives. And to your earlier point, uh, having been in Iowa and New Hampshire a lot for Bernie Sanders, uh, I don't know if the media cares, but the voters sure do. I mean, they care about the Green New Deal. They care about uh, his housing plan. They care about what health care and education is gonna mean in their lives. Absolutely, and and finally, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Joe Biden's uh, recent comments during his no malarkey tour in Iowa. You know, he was recently interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and during that interview, he questioned the enthusiasm for a candidate like Elizabeth Warren. He used the line, don't kid a kidder, which indicates that there might be a little malarkey in his campaign if he's referring to himself as a kidder. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. First off, how he's kind of behaved during his election or, or his candidacy, I should say, and whether or not uh, he is right about the enthusiasm regarding Warren. The, the reality is the enthusiasm in the primary is all on the progressive side. It's with Senator Sanders and it's with Senator Warren. That's where the energy is, that's where the activism is, that's where the crowds are. Now, uh, is it 100% of progressive is it gonna emerge? No, because there's so many other factors. There's who is the establishment gonna support, who's getting the most media mentions, who's the most on television. But when you look at where the organic energy of this party is and where this party is headed in the future, any objective observer will tell you it's on the progressive side with Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. And if I were Vice President Biden, I would just acknowledge that, that yes, she has large crowd sizes and yes, there's a lot of progressive energy and maybe he can position himself as a bridge to a progressive future. But to deny where the energy is of this party, uh, I think just isn't going to uh, be credible. Yeah, and I feel as though uh, some of his missteps on the campaign trail are finally coming back uh, to haunt him because uh, he's experiencing a dip in, in some of these polls. And look, the message that he has is simply, I'm not gonna do anything for you. If, if you're having trouble because you're a student drowning in student loan debt, give me a break. Your life isn't that difficult. I mean, he famously said that recently um, during an interview. And it's just not very inspiring. And what I find fascinating about Biden is how incredibly stubborn he is in his messaging. He really thinks that he has a winning strategy in offering nothing new to, to American voters. Well, to talk about the issues, because I wanna focus on that, not just the politics. I would say that there are two different philosophical visions for the Democratic Party. There's the vision that says, uh, let's just go back to the way things were before Trump. And then there are those of us who are saying, we have rising inequality, uh, extraordinary regional inequality, uh, the most inequality we've seen since prior to the Great Depression, that we need dramatic change in this country if we're gonna give people in the working class and middle class a shot at the American dream. And that means providing them with healthcare, providing them with an education, providing them with affordable housing, uh, and that's really the division in this uh, uh, in the Democratic Party. And I, I, hope, I know that the energy 
uh, in the House uh, and also in the presidential campaign is with the progressive vision. But it's not clear yet uh, whether we have uh, enough to win. But that's that's what remains to be seen. All right, Congressman Rokana, thank you for joining us as always. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, thank you for watching. TYT's post game is next.